Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another cold, frigid, winter-like fall week from Wisconsin. Rebecca Lynch is not with us, and um, we uh, she will be gone uh, on a little bit of a hiatus from the show. Uh, we look forward to Rebecca returning at another time, but we are really glad that Rebecca is able to spend a little time uh, back home. But we are super fortunate to have a special fill-in guest panelist. She's back for more punishment. Claire Zogke, our healthcare, uh, our healthcare director here at Citizen Action. Claire, it's great to have you back. Oh, thanks! I'm yeah. so excited. All right, and as always, Robert Craig, executive director. He is not with us here in the recording studio. A little under the weather, so he is from home. Robert Craig, how you doing? I'm doing a little better, but uh, thank you for asking, and good day, everyone. So we are going to start the show talking about the uh, Democratic presidential primary because we have uh, told our listeners we're going to continue to talk about this, uh, even though it's not specifically a state issue. Um, so the, there's some big news this week. Uh, Deval Patrick, uh, we record Thursday mornings, is announcing or announced yesterday um, that he is into the race. And I'd like to have a conversation. And, oh, and in addition, Bloomberg. Bloomberg is going to get in, mm -hmm. most likely, most likely. So we're going to be, what, back up to 18, 19 if uh, Bloomberg jumps in. Um, but instead of diving into that, those two in particular, although I'm open to hearing your, your thoughts on it, this is clearly about Biden. We've been talking about Biden and his potential weakness. And Biden, of course, is sort of the, you know, you, you call it the establishment, but sort of the more moderate and, and definitely the financial or the Wall Street or um, the financial industries more their, more their candidate. And they're very worried, clearly. I think Duvall getting in, who comes, uh, comes out of that, that uh, financial industry, background and definitely more of what you would describe as a moderate uh, a Democrat, I would say is reflecting that Biden is taking on water. They're very desperate. Uh, and the other thing is, I don't know what this says about Pete Buttigieg, who is clearly rising in the polls and is, I think, naturally starting to get some of the Biden folks who are concerned or others who hadn't made a selection uh, that maybe aren't as progressive. Um, so I don't know. Do they not like Buttigieg? Uh, but clearly someone is helping support Duvall get in. Claire, I want you to lead on this because you told me earlier today that this is an interesting story. Claire is in a rotisserie presidential Rotisserie? <laughs> Rotisserie League, right? Or uh, what do you call it? <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, so I am personally <laughs> you have very, Duvall. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited about Deval Patrick's entrance to this race uh, for literally no other reason <laughs> than my grad school friends and I have a fantasy draft uh, situation going with, uh, with the presidential candidates, uh, Democratic primary candidates. And uh, like a, literally like a year ago, we did our draft and um, I put Deval Patrick on my team because I everyone thought he was going to get in at the run. time. Yeah, yeah, he was in yeah. fact like he was recruiting friends of mine from my past campaign life to work for him. And so I was like, he like I chose him in an early round because I knew he was going to run. And then like literally two weeks later, he announced he wasn't going to run. So I'm super excited because I'm going to get some points from him. So now, other than Claire's rotisserie, rotisserie. presidential <laughs> fantasy league, um, Claire, your thoughts on you know on this and what it means for the overall race. 
I I just don't know what he thinks his base is. I I, I don't know who he thinks his <laughs> voters are, right? But but everything that he I feel like I shouldn't say everybody is is a special person, right? And everybody's a unicorn. But I don't know what he brings to the table that isn't already there in the dozen, fifteen other candidates who are already out there. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's, you know, a former governor. Well, there's governors and former governors already in the race. You know, he's um, you know, sort of in this moderate space. So there's already moderates in the space. He has uh, sort of, you know, if you want to say Wall Street ties, well, I mean, like nobody's more Wall Street than Bloomberg and Bloomberg's going to get in. Right. Like, right. I just don't know what he thinks his his niche is. And it's weird to have done this at a time when there's already been, what, three de- three debates yeah. already. And I I think most voters are pretty happy with the choice, right? Like, we haven't had as much excitement, certainly amongst our membership, about a presidential. So obviously, 16 was exciting, but it was right away a two-person race, really. Whereas this thing is wide open, um, and I think most actual rank-and-file voters are actually pretty thrilled with the variety and the quality. Um, and this also connects, and then, Robert, I'm going to go to you, uh, Hillary Clinton did suggest that there were lots of people, people asking her to run Bloomberg. Who, who's asking for these? Who's asking for candidates 17, 18, and 19, you know, back again? We were kind of happy we were getting down. Your thoughts, Robert? Well, I think that um, this does show, I think you said it's a wide open race just a minute ago, Matt, and that is uh, what's driving this. Uh, you got ambitious politicians. You got this seemingly open field that's not settled. I think a lot of the quote unquote moderates or Wall Street Democrats, whatever you want to call them, are not only noticing Biden's weakness, but they're thinking to themselves, who is this mayor of South Bend? I have more credentials than they do. So they, they, they jump in, right? And obviously, they do have probably a Governor Patrick has some backers who encourage you to do it. Every, every successful politician has some uh, people who are whispering in their ear. Uh, but they're trying to find that middle. It also reflects, quite frankly, there's all this reporting in the last month, month and a half, that uh, a lot of uh, Democratic donors, that would be big donors from Wall Street and other big interests, are don't like the field and wanted other candidates. And then, lo and behold, after that reporting, we have other candidates. So there's a there's a relationship there. And I think it also shows great fear of the progressive wing winning the primary, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, who are running, uh, quite frankly, uh, either first and third or second and third in this race. Uh, And so there's that going on as well. If this was a parliamentary system, a multi-party system, not a kind of monopoly two-party system, there'd be more than one party, the Democratic Party, on the left. There'd be a center-left party that is much more corporate, and there'd be a left party. And a lot of progressives don't get that sometimes because the center-left part of the party tries to pretend they're progressive during elections and populist and then appoints a bunch of people like Tim Geithner, Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers in charge of, uh, of you know, the Economic Council, etc. And then we don't really get progressive policy, which actually harms us. So this is actually a divide. and It's not a civil war, but a serious divide in the party, and people should recognize that who are progressive and want actual fundamental reform. So there was some other important news this week, certainly from the movement side, progressive side, or at least in the last week or so. And it was good news for Bernie Sanders, the, the nurse union um, 
which has been one of the stalwarts in uh, Medicare for all and single uh, single payer health care for, for a long time, but specifically uh, the recent legislation that's out there have announced that they are also supporting Sanders and um, there was also another group, uh, African American Women's Group. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. They endorsed Warren very publicly, and a yeah, long, a long yeah. list of leaders uh, uh, supporting Elizabeth Warren. And then also um, another national network, the Center for Popular Democracy, announced that they're down to Warren, Sanders, and Castro. So, Robert, when you when you talk about this as being sort of uh, Wall Street interests, right, sort of being very concerned with the field. I, I, you know, I do think you're right. I do think Sanders and Warren continue to be inc- very strong. Uh, and, and I think that is concerning because we've talked about it. They stand out in terms of their agenda and what they're talking about. And, and that certainly is a threat to a lot of the status quo. But we'll, we'll continue to track this. I don't know, Claire, if you have any other final thoughts before we move on. Oh, um, yeah, the name of that group that you couldn't think of yes. is Black Women For. Thank you. I'm yeah. glad you got that. Yeah. Um, so, I think listeners should also bear this in mind. Uh, the establishment, Wall Street Democrats, will tend to run on a populist progressive platform to get the, enough, enough to get the Democratic vote, all of it, including progressives, and then not govern that way. And so... During the Great Recession, after the 2008 election, Barack Obama had had a group of progressive economic advisors that were his public team. But then when he took office, he put the Wall Street people in charge, and they did not offer him progressive policy options. It was so bad. They were so concerned about the deficit and so against a huge spending on green infrastructure that could have done something about climate change and so much uh, into kind of a Wall Street approach that they put all their money into saving Wall Street, let 10 million people lose their homes in foreclosure, and knowingly left unemployment so high that it was going to cause a very bad election in 2010. So they're literally, this is the cause of the Tea Party. So you need to understand that these elections have consequences, that people like Biden are running to the left right now. question is whether you believe them once they get into office. And so there is a real backlash going on against the fact that you have two candidates that really are for fundamental progressive reform, uh, Warren and Sanders. And this scares the heck out of the establishment that dominates the Democratic Party. That's what's going on. Well, we got to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. When we come back, we are going to move our attention to state issues. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are going to talk state politics because, you know, so much is happening there. It has been one of the most productive state legislatures in the history of Wisconsin. Everything that you had hoped and dreamed in 2018 in November as you went to the polls a year ago, you pulled the trigger as because Facebook was sending you those one-year anniversaries of the glorious victories oh. um, in your one-year anniversaries this past week. Oh, those, <laughs> are, the those past, are a week ago, so and, painful this time of year. And now, right, like, here we are. The legislature this week has adjourned for at least two months, unless, of course, and interested in getting any of your thoughts, Evers has a second special session on guns. Um, but... So the legislature has left. Claire, you're our health care director. 
what happened? Nothing on health care. No, we obviously very little has happened on health care. And we have very pressing things between what's happening on the attack on the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid expansion. I mean, indeed. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's disheartening. Um, (laughs) I I certainly had um, high hopes for um, being able to make some progress on health care related things this legislative session. Certainly knew it would be hard, um, but given how... Um, salient these issues are and how um, sort of politically potent they are. I thought that there might be room for, you know, small incremental movement, at least um, with some Republican support and the Democratic governor. I thought maybe we'd get a couple small things and just none of that's panned out. I think it's it's absolutely astounding that no one wanted to even try to move the standalone Badger Care expansion legislation that Representative Reamer and Senator Erpenbach introduced several months ago now. I mean, like, nobody even pretended like they right. wanted to try to have a, so much as a hearing. I mean, not even a vote, right? But uh, even even in the Dem caucus, right, it was just like, we need to talk about other things because these issues are non-starters sometimes. Um, and that's really disheartening because this is what this is what the voters care about. This is what constituents care about. This is what Wisconsin residents care about. Um, so, so that was certainly disheartening. Um, but then when you look at what happened in in the past week with um, with the firing of ag, the ag secretary, um, who I mean, it, not to be overly folksy, but if there's one thing that we all should be able to get behind as Wisconsinites, it should be like providing mental health services to dairy farmers. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, yeah. And and right, like if there's there's nothing more sort of central to sort of the the Wisconsin identity as a collective than dairy farmers, and so to have such a such a vitriolic um, and sort of personal attack on somebody who is who is trying to defend them um, is is so disheartening right and and that's a health issue right because he was talking the ag secretary was talking about mental health services for dairy farmers um, and so I was like okay here's an issue that maybe it, you know it's health related but it's coming at it from a different angle no not even that is something that I want to talk about Robert and this is in the face of nationally Medicaid expansion in particular, right? The expanding Badger Care, which just seems, as Claire was saying, ought to have just had a better fate, continues to get more popular, both not only here in Wisconsin, but just nationally and Republican places that have been accepting Medicaid. You had more thoughts, I know, on that. There are two different stories here, the story of the Democrats and the stories of the Republicans with the gerrymandered majority in the legislature. Remember, we have a minority legislature that lost the popular vote but has rigged unfair maps to hold it supermajority. And that's what stopped Medicaid expansion, because there were certainly signs that the Senate would cave enough Republicans if they hadn't known that Voss would kill it in the Assembly with his artificial majority. And so literally, though, the key thing to understand is, is that modern conservatives don't actually care about guaranteeing people affordable health care. They only pay lip service to it for political reasons, period. But at the end of the day, it, it's not what motivates them at all. And, and that's why it's such a huge issue in elections. Now, you have a Republican leadership here that got, did what it wanted to do this session. It stopped Governor Evers from getting anything significant done. 
And they're willing to call it a day, not just for this year, but the whole legislative session, because that is their ambition. They're trying to simply lock in place what Walker did over the last eight years, period. And they were partners in that. Uh, the other thing to understand about modern conservatives is it's all about power. And they can't stand the fact that, they're, that they have to share power with a Democrat. And everything is gauged to making him seem unsuccessful, period. No matter what it does, no matter how it affects voters. And what Democrats need to do is to make that clear. And my concern is, is that Democrats have not been nearly bold enough about offering any kind of big, exciting ideas uh, that voters could get behind that the Republicans are stopping. The only thing you could really say is obviously uh, Badger Care expansion, Medicaid expansion, because all Democrats are for it. It was a top issue for Governor Evers, which is an okay electoral issue, but doesn't affect most people in the state of Wisconsin. I think it's a huge moral issue, but as an electoral issue, it's okay, right? And, but not like pre-existing condition discrimination or anything that, that, that affects a lot more people. The other thing that they have is, is this common sense gun safety reform, which I just don't think is going to galvanize voters. It's not even that bold a position. It's, it's good that Governor Evers is doing what he's doing and calling their bluff. But really, can anyone name, maybe Claire and Matt knows, what are some other big priorities coming from legislative Democrats that they are trying to charge forward with? I mean, they're not even go going to try to make do anything to prevent the, the major protection of the Affordable Care Act from being taken away. They're at least certainly not making it a major issue when that is threatened in, in federal court right now. I don't think I don't think you're wrong, right? I think that there is a um, there is a dearth of um, of big of big vision to to a great extent out there. Um, yeah, and and I, but I want to add that I think because I totally agree with everything Robert said, and I think that it shows that Wisconsin system is so much more hyper polarized, and that our conservatives are are so are, are too disconnected from what the community and what the state's residents want much more than conservatives in many other states, right? So if you look at, for example, who has expanded or is um, in the process of trying to expand Medicaid um, statewide in the most recent years, I mean, we can look at, for example, Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah had um, voter-approved ballot initiatives to expand Medicaid and are in the process with the federal government of doing that. And it's not as if Idaho, Nebraska and Utah are like deep blue states, right? I mean, these are these are conservative and conservative leaning states. And and so they clearly have conservative residents and conservative legislators who are willing to do this because it's the right thing to do for their community. So we just have this sort of to use Robert's word, you know, false majority, this this sort of hyper partisan uh, legislature here that is really removed from what the community wants and what the community needs well, in a special way. I totally agree, and it's partially why I think everyone had more optimism that some basic stuff could get through this last year. Uh, Robert, to answer your question, um, the Democrats, at least you know, on the Assembly side, what they're talking about this week that didn't happen were Medicaid expansion, universal background checks, nonpartisan redistricting, closing the dark store loophole, and medical marijuana. So those are the ones that they're all fairly universally highlighting. So clearly that's what like they're putting out there. And 
So it, it does sort of get to your point, right? Like Medicaid expansion is great and we, we're glad they're there, but we need something more visionary, as you said, right? Like, and then, so med even medical marijuana, right? We already know we're already over 60% support for full legalization, which... So I would I would argue, though, yeah. that um, just having a list of progressive policies out there that you support proposals like um, medical marijuana and right, um, that, that that's not enough for them just to be out there. Right. If they're not in the zeitgeist, if people in the community aren't talking about them, if the public's not aware sure. that there is this bold policy, legislative, um, you know, slate of, of bills or whatever right. that people that the that the Democrats are uniformly sort of pushing in this super public way then it's as if they don't exist right uh, like we need to be in the business of of agenda setting at least democrats need to be in the business of agenda setting um, especially when they're so far in the minority you can't just be like oh i have these bills and so that's enough um like no if we want to if we want to get traction in the community we people need to know and right now i don't think folks know right i mean the fact that it took you reading them to me for me to remember like oh right that is out there and i'm somebody who's actively involved in politics and works in the advocacy sphere right um i think that shows that that we're not doing enough or that democrats aren't doing enough um to to promote these policies in the community and with that we have got to take a break here at the battleground wisconsin we'll be right back you're listening to the battleground wisconsin with citizen action you can find us at citizen action Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. So we had a nice little detour into state-level politics. I do want to actually uh, make sure we have a couple of minutes to do an update on the, f the national, uh, uh, I guess you'd say it, uh, threat to democracy that is our, our presidency and impeachment. Um, Robert, I'm going to give you the first thoughts on this. It's a big week. We've transferred into the public hearing aspects and the first day was yesterday wednesday um uh, gripping testimony but your, your thoughts overall robert yeah you know i got back from a long trip monday night and woke up sick and so i've i've had two sick days i'm still sequestering myself in the bath so i'm feeling feeling like i'm on the men today but anyway because i was sick yesterday which would be wednesday we record thursday I actually saw the entire uh, first impeachment hearing on the impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump, and it was uh, quite the show. We only learned a little bit new, but quite frankly, the Republican position is, uh, despite highly credible witnesses, that it's all hearsay. It's all hearsay. We're not hearing from direct people. And, of course, the Trump White House is preventing those people from testifying. We know they exist which did not happen in the, uh, in the Nixon impeachment. We actually heard from, you know, John Dean and John Mitchell, et cetera, et cetera, the direct players. Uh, but the Evans continued to be damning, but the Republicans are showing no sign of doing anything other than throwing up every cockamamie defense they can possibly throw up and hope it sticks. So it's a, it's a little depressing, and it is a constitutional crisis but to the extent that if this president can get away with never even having, uh, you know, providing the testimony that the, the Congress has a right to as a critical branch of government, that's a real problem moving forward and a bad precedent for our whole system of government. Claire? 
I agree with Robert. Um, I also think that these televised um, streaming public impeachment hearings are going to be really bad for my productivity. Um, I'm just kidding, Robert. (laughs) My boss is on the phone. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Bad joke. Um, No, but it was really really interesting to hear um, people, even if it's things that we already knew through uh, public statements and leaked uh, documents um, from the closed sessions. Uh, it was still really interesting to hear um, these people testifying say it in their own words and with such conviction. I think um, I think seeing them stand their ground and defend themselves as uh, sort of nonpartisan people who are only interested in serving their country and are generally trying to do the right thing um, is is really compelling. Uh, and, and I think it makes their testimony really interesting uh, to to watch. And I think it's going to have an effect on the public. The thing, and this picks up a little bit on what Robert was saying, that just blows my mind. The notion that quid pro quo has to be uttered out of somebody's mouth is absurd, right? Like, you have everything short of, like, these specific words, right? Where, And yet they still continue to get hung up on this idea, well... He didn't specifically say quid pro quo, right? It's like, uh, yeah, well, everybody basically <laughs> went under the assumption, operated. It was the general. That's what was clear mm-hmm. Wednesday, that everybody involved believed that there was a quid pro quo and operated as such, whether the actual word was stated. The word is not required. This is a Trump messaging point. And by the way, although... One has been shown, they still deny it, you're pointing out, Matt, because of the word. I think they'd even argue, try to explain away the word, if the word was used. But there's nothing in the Constitution that says that uh, only explicit quid pro quo is articulated by the president that you actually can get evidence of, because they're hiding all the evidence, right? Um, are valid for impeachment. There is no such standard. Yeah, and I think that's something that's a constitutional and a constitutional crisis. That's certainly a, a super bad practice that I'm really upset about that I think is buried in a lot of these conversations is this idea that there is sort of a formal way of doing things on paper and then there's this shadow way of doing things, right? Um, and that that is something um, that these people testifying um, have talked a lot about, right? Is that is that they're like, we thought we were part of the formal process process and then all of a sudden we're part of this informal process that involves Rudy Giuliani and all of these people who are working sort of off the books to undermine the efforts of of sort of the traditional um, path of governing is really really destructive and really upsetting and I, I so I'm an avid listener of the New York Times Daily podcast and they did I think it was them did an episode how um, this is not a practice exclusively in in the State Department involving Ukraine, that this happened to the VA secretary who Trump fired as well, where there was a series of political appointees who were embedded within the VA office and actively worked to undermine the VA secretary and get him fired. And when he discovered it because of a memo that was left on a copier and went to Trump and said, I need to fire these people, they are actively trying to get me fired, he was told, no, you can't. And instead it was him who got fired because he was 
wasn't pushing the radical privatization of the VA system fast enough the way that Trump wanted him to. And so I think this shows that this sort of secondary shadow government exists within the tree within the Trump administration as an is embedded in probably, you know, every department and every every cabinet position within the Trump administration. And that is so scary because it exists and we only see it's like an iceberg. We only see the tip of it. We're only talking about it in the State Department right now. That is terrifying to me. And we're not talking about it as part of the impeachment hearings, except as like a side note. So those were some excellent thoughts. I will continue to talk about this going forward, but uh, want to make sure we're going to have um, State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski on in the next segment. We're really excited. We've missed her for a couple of months. But uh, before we go to break, Robert, you mentioned you're under the weather, and uh, today you would have been in Lacrosse. We're having a big event, a, a media event, uh, with our new Driftless Co-op that is organizing. Um, at, why don't you tell our listeners around what we're doing around fighting climate change? Yes, unfortunately, Kevin Kane on our staff is subbing for me at the press conference, and he is very good at doing that. Uh, so we are working on climate change, both in terms of uh, a policy around the big urban area, Milwaukee, which we've talked about on the show, but also one more rurally based. And I think the listeners all know that we literally have to dramatically reduce greenhouse emissions within the next 10 years have a chance of preventing a genocidal level of climate change. We already have guaranteed climate change. It's a matter of whether we can keep the damage at controllable margins. And so what we're doing in each place is trying to have what are the starter campaigns to get people going to move towards this. And so we're building a whole new organizing co-op in western Wisconsin in the famous Ripless area of Wisconsin, and we're focusing on uh, people do, uh, making it possible through unique financing people to uh, do energy efficiency upgrades to their houses, but then joining us in our co-op to fight for more fundamental climate reform. And out in western Wisconsin, it's because there's so much flooding, there's epic flooding, there's a real consciousness that climate is already changing and not for the better, and that they need to adapt and to try to reduce the impact. And we're also working uh, to push rural electric co-ops to actually have on-bill financing, which means you can finance any energy efficiency upgrades uh, through your utility bill. And since they save money over time, you actually pay and, and you immediately save money on the efficiency. You actually get a lower utility bill, and it all gets paid for and paid off over time. It's a more than a zero interest loan. It's a negative interest loan, if you think about it. Uh, but no utility in Wisconsin does on-bill financing. They've been able to push them to other states. We're going to start with the rural electric co-ops because they are democratically run and are run by and, and their boards are elected in, uh, in much of Wisconsin and the rural areas is covered by rural electric co-ops. So this press conference is to announce this whole effort in lacrosse, and I know that major TV stations are already told me they're going to be there because I sent out the media advisories for Kevin. So that is today, but, you, but stay tuned. You'll hear a lot more, both our rural strategy and our big strategy in Milwaukee, the city-county climate task force that we have been a major player in instigating and, and, uh, and citizen action members and coalition partners are well represented on. So, folks, if you are interested in joining the Driftless Organizing Cooperative, you should reach out to Ben Wilson at citizenactionwi.org. Um, but before we go to break, uh, wanted to give a shout out to all the students this week. 
that organized uh, in support of DACA. Uh, there were big events in Madison and Milwaukee and I think other pl places certainly around the country. Um, but this week, the Supreme Court is hearing, uh, I believe, three lawsuits related to DACA. But it's it appears pretty clear from the testimony that DACA is in trouble because it does not have the support of the president or it looks like the Supreme Court will not likely be renewing it. But um, shout out to the the DACA folks and the stories that came out this week about these folks, amazing people. Um, this is a fight that is going to continue. Uh, but we have got to take a break. Uh, you are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. After the break, we'll be joined by State Treasurer Sarah Gabluski. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are really happy to bring back a segment that, um, due to my, I'll, I'll take the blame, uh, we've been busy. We haven't had what the Gudluski does the state treasurer do in a couple months. Sarah, we're really thrilled, Sarah Gudluski, the state treasurer, that you have the time to join us today. Thanks, Sarah. Matt, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. I've missed you guys. Yeah, well, you've been busy, and we're gonna we'll dive into the stuff that's keeping you busy professionally. Um, I want to start with something that actually melds the personal and the professional. Um, you have an interesting story, since you're always telling us about what's going on in the treasurer's office, uh, that you're having to navigate that uh, blends your personal and the professional as it relates to being the first woman state treasurer. Let us Tell us more about that. It's kind of a funny but exciting story, so I am excited. Expecting that at the end of the month, I'll be bringing a sixth-generation Wisconsinite into this world, so we are thrilled. Congratulations. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. We are really excited. Um, and, you know, I'm experiencing all my first, so one of the things I just went to the state was that, okay, so what is this maternity, our paternity policy look like? And um, I get a lot of silence because there's never been a constitutional officer or statewide elected official to actually be expecting. <laughs> um, so there was nothing on the books uh, with regards wow. to how to navigate this and um, what are some expectations. So not only am I doing math and investments in the basement now, Matt, but I've been finding myself writing um, guidelines on how we should handle this because in my mind it's not about if another woman is expecting again in the future it's about when and I think we want to leave something better behind because um, more women have families like this is just what we do yeah this is such this is such a clear example of why representation matters right like we need we need women in office because it should not be almost 2020 when there is a maternity leave paternity leave policy for statewide elected officers that needs to be written. Well, and it's it's interesting, Claire, that you talk about that because one of the things we've been mentioning a lot is the whole paid family leave, um, because that's a really significant economic burden that families have to navigate every day is how are they managing when they have a child or if they take care of a sick family member and there's there's nothing typically for Wisconsinites to help them afford how to do this totally yeah and this we were actually uh 
before Hi. before we had you on, Sarah, we were talking about all the things that the legislature didn't do and, and important things. This is actually one of the visions that the Democrats have been out there with on really trying to improve leave, paid leave, sick leave, all of those kinds of leaves that um, a family would need in order to be able to make it work, right, and have the kind of economic opportunity that we all need. Uh, and so you were obviously out front on, on helping uh, support that legislation just in the past month. Right. I mean, so I one of the things that I was like looking into, because I think representation matters, is just how many what's out of people who work in the U.S., how many actually have access to paid family leave? And we know it's 11 percent. Mm. So 89% of workers don't have access to any sort of paid family leave. So they have to do things like dip into their savings accounts, like retirement. They have to borrow money. They have to stop paying bills. And what's even more concerning is they have to then go out and ask the state to help them. They go on public assistance. And in states like California and in New Jersey who have paid family leave, not only does it save the state money in the long run, it actually helps businesses because their recruitment and retention rate go down significantly. They're able to retain people better, and that's a significant cost saving. So it's a win-win for the state. It's a win-win for working families, and it's also a win-win for business. I also, I, I also want to say that I think um, it's also a win-win for uh, public health, right? Because uh, we know that um, like mothers who have to go back to work after just a, a few weeks after giving birth means that they aren't spending time doing the newborn, like the important health things that you do with the newborn, right? So uh, making sure that they're um, fed on time, monitoring uh, their their health. Um, bonding, right? Like all of these things are important things that you have to do with a newborn. And when you have to go back to work right away, I mean, not only is is your body maybe not healed from the, the process of giving birth, your mind is maybe not healed yet, right? I mean, you're probably not sleeping, so you can't be productive at work. And and also, right, like your kid is, is probably not receiving as much care as if you or your partner had uh, more time to to spend caring for it at home. Um, and we know that there are significant health disparities that exist between um, people who can afford to, st uh, the children of people who can afford to stay home with their children and those um, who can't. And, and Wisconsin is already at the top of a lot of lists of, of health disparities that exist across socioeconomic lines, right? Like racial health disparities, class health disparities. It's really, um, it's, it's really awful, and and to paid leave is something that could help address those those health disparities amongst babies in particular and mothers. Well, so I think, yeah, and I think Claire, you really nailed it because if you look at the U.S. and even drill down to Wisconsin, we have really bad infant mortality rates. Mm -hmm. We have really high mother death rates for childbirth and we live in a developed country we shouldn't be having these problems but yet we have some of the highest statistics in the world um and i think you can link that back to we don't take care of families to allow them to take care of their families um so yeah paid family leave is a big part of that and knowing that we're one of the only countries that haven't hasn't really stepped up to the plate and yet states around us are stepping up to the plate to do it. So I think it's time for Wisconsin to start leading on this issue rather than watching Minnesota 
Illinois, all these other states start to do it, um, we need to start stepping up, I think, and taking care of families as well. Sarah, this is Robert. I know that uh, the Republicans in the legislature have done away with the nicety of even having hearings. But back when they used to have hearings on bills that were introduced, you would have this predictable lineup of business lobbyists, both people who claim to represent small business, so it's a very small portion of small business, and the, the big corporate interests, like with manufacturers and commerce. And they would all make this case that it would bankrupt all these companies, that every, every business or company is on the brink of bankruptcy, and what this would do to us is terrible. And so... It is sort of like the sky is falling. Every little improvement they say is going to hurt them and are not open to the broader perspective you and Claire have just offered up. It's, and so we really have a problem with who represents business. Because if you take small business, right, the lobby is extremely right-wing. But that small business is way more diverse, and they lose employees all the time because they cannot offer the same health benefits and the same leave uh, that uh, that a bigger company can offer, and they lose their best employees all the time. It would actually level the playing field for entrepreneurs and smaller companies, but they're not being well represented in, in Madison at all, and that's what re reflected in sort of the reflective negativity you get from uh, Republican conservatives who hold power. Well, and I think, Robert, to that point, you're, you hit the nail on the head because if you would go to – so California has had the – paid family leave program um, at the state level for the longest is I believe it's over two and a half, maybe going on their third year. And they recently did a survey and over 90% of their small businesses said that it either had no effect or a positive effect on their company. 90 plus percent um, are glad that the state implemented this program. So you're exactly right. Uh, I think that there's this false perception that it's going to somehow hurt companies and hurt business. When you actually look at the data and you actually talk to states that are doing this, companies like it, and so and it's good for working families and good for our economy. Well, let me just say this is this conversation's been one of the reasons why it's great to have you as state treasurer. Um, we had you on to come and talk about your specific work that you're doing around the the retirement task force. And we ended up talking about a equally critically important issue that you're involved in as a leader, right? Like there's nothing in your job title that says you were supposed to be at that press conference. You were supposed to be involved in this issue and you are. And that's why you're an important leader. And we're really glad that you take the time to talk with us. But we're going to have to wrap this up in a minute. I want to give you the last minute just to let listeners know about your your task force on um, retirement, and we'll dive deeper into it uh, next time and how people can get involved in uh, if they want to help uh, set up, change the way we uh, protect people in retirement. Sarah? Yeah, no, it's uh, last month was an exciting month because we did kick off our retirement security task force. And Really, our goal is to find a solution for those 50-plus percent of Wisconsinites who don't have access to retirement. Um, and we know Social Security isn't enough to cover all their medical bills, housing, you name it. And so that's our goal. Um, we've been traveling the state doing listening sessions, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, but a, a really big important part is listening to people and understanding what they're dealing with, because the last thing we want to do is develop a plan or a policy that's not helpful. 
Um, so we appreciate that uh, Citizen Action really shedding light on this. And we look forward to hearing from uh, working families across Wisconsin and um, how we can best make sure that we have the retirement security that people deserve. Well, when we have you on next time, we'll, we're going to dive more into this and we'll continue to educate uh, folks about the events uh, as you have more public hearings on this. But we have got to wrap this up, Sarah. It was great to have you back on. We really appreciate your leadership uh, here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Thanks for having me. It's always fun talking with you guys. Oh, so much fun. Thank you. And with that, we have got to end this episode of the Battleground Wisconsin. We want to thank our producer, Brian Wildridge, who makes it happen every week. We want to thank Claire Zauke, healthcare director here at Citizen Action, for stepping in for Rebecca Lynch. We hope Rebecca is enjoying her time off. We will see y'all here next week at the Battleground Wisconsin. <laughs>